Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But we have seen a number of proposals uh, from private equity funds where the returns are really not calculated in a, in a manner that they're not calculated in a manner that I would regard as honest. And uh, so I, if I were running a pension fund, I would be very careful about what was being uh, offered to me. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So Warren Buffett is not a big fan of private equity firms, in particular the way they borrow so much against the assets that they are borrowing. He thinks they don't provide a good return for investors. Well, for the people who worked in Morrison's, they might think that it's not good for the companies that they're buying either. So what are they good for? Well, equity funds are good for the owners of equity funds. But is that it? Are they an under-regulated part of the finance sector that has had it too good for too long, leaving a trail of destruction in their way? That's what we look at this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, let me tell you about Morrison's, the supermarket chain. Actually, it's one of Britain's biggest supermarket chains. It's 124 years old. It was founded in Bradford by William Morrison in 1899, and it was all going well. It was passed down through the family with Ken Morrison taking charge in 1950. He was actually working for the company from uh, when he was just five years old, helping to stack shelves and the like. So it grew up mainly in the north of England. They were quite innovative. They introduced the first self-service checkout in 1962. In 1967, it listed on the London Stock Exchange. In 1999, they celebrated 100 years with the opening of their 100th store. And they were one of the first supermarkets really to try and create the feel of a series of smaller stalls and small shops within one big supermarket through having different, you know, deli counters and all that sort of stuff. The other thing they did was they maintained the same price from store to store, whereas all the other supermarkets were charging different prices depending on the, the wealth of the area. It didn't matter where you lived with Morrison's, it was the same everywhere. So all was going well. It was making healthy profits. Uh, when Sir Ken Morrison bowed out in 2012, it was making a profit of 600 12 million pounds, uh, which is about 840 million in today's money. Shares had skyrocketed to 325 pounds. Go back to 1985, they were worth about 10. But then things changed. Uh, they bought, now out of the hands of the family, uh, they bought Safeways for about 3 billion pounds in 2004, another supermarket uh, chain. It didn't go well. Shares went down to £160, making them ripe for takeover. That took a while, but in 2021, shareholders agreed to sell out to a US private equity fund, Clayton, Dublia and Rice, for £7 billion. The problem is the private equity fund borrowed the money to fund the purchase and using obviously the equity of the, of the business uh, to support that, uh, that, that loan. And they were caught out by interest rates. Think of the timing. This is 2021. Uh, so presumably it had all been written into the balance sheet of the business. So now, Steve, 
They are making cuts. Morrison's is struggling. I mean, it's a travesty. How sh- how could this sort of thing be allowed to happen? Well, it happens all the time, and 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 a lot of these private equity firms actually work on quite rapacious terms. They will, as you say, borrow the money to do a takeover. They asset strip the company in the meantime. They pay themselves fees out of the uh, out of the uh, borrowed money quite frequently, and then the company collapses afterwards. But they've 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 done a hit and run, and. Uh, you know the, the the promise always is that the, the, the private equity will find areas of inefficiency and get rid of those and make the company quite functional. I know of one case where that happened, and I'm quite happy to talk about it. it involves my good friend Richard Vega. We have to have on the show one of these days because Richard actually did do him his own private equity uh, takeover at the bank he was working for at the time, did do exactly what they normally say they're going to do, did turn it around and create a quite a profitable business out of it. Uh, but the the norm is quite frequently uh, uh, asset stripping. And uh, you remember the old movie Pretty Woman? Mm-hmm, of course, yeah. With Richard that was the basis of it. Yeah. He, was a, he was a private equity man. Yeah. He, and what they do is they find an underdeveloped asset. Uh, in that case, they was talking about uh, a shorefront uh, uh, industrial estate on a river somewhere in, I think it was in Chicago. I may have got the town wrong. And uh, he, they then buy it up and sell it for something completely different and shut down the industry. And that's, uh, you know, that, it may not be intentional in this case of Morris that that's been the outcome because interest rates caught them a cropper but this is you know asset stripping seems to be the name of the game yeah absolutely that was a movie about uh, screwing people over in both senses of the word wasn't it really indeed one 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 being more enjoyable than the other <laughs> i think so so uh the uh, i mean yeah this is this is textbook stuff i think isn't it with morrison's and they you know so they're now at that asset stripping stage in that they uh they have appointed a new uh ceo just uh and i'm trying to find his name rami Batia, I think, is their their new boss. He says there's going to need to be big changes to cover the billions of pounds in debt in order to survive. So, but of course, you know what they're not Which saying the is debt didn't exist. The de- exactly. The so yeah. what's happened is, in fact, you know, money that has been given to shareholders. The debt has been created by basically by paying off shareholders, and now the the workers are facing cuts because of it. There was a story about one. It was in the actually the Mail Online, which is something I don't normally read, but they've picked up on this story. Uh, one employee was had a 35 hour week reduced to 12 so her income's basically being reduced by 800 pounds per month uh, because of this debt which is basically yeah just paying off the shareholders yeah and a lot of the neoclassical economic theory plays a major role in encouraging this because one of the most famous theorems in economics called the Medigliani Miller theorem after the two jerks who came up with it they got the Nobel Prize which is why I can formally call them jerks um, they argued that it, it didn't matter how a company was funded at the level of debt had no impact upon the company's valuation. And their logic was that because uh, a, a shareholder with no debt could buy the shares uh, or a person uh, and the company could itself be highly levered or a person with uh, uh, with lots of debt could buy the company's shares and the company could be not levered at all and the outcome is much the same. So it didn't matter how you financed it. And then the next step of their logic was to say that if, since interest payments are deductible off in profits, whereas 
dividend payments or not. Uh, where there is where there is tax on income, uh, the advisable level of debt for a company was one hundred percent. Now, I probably slightly caricatured the article, but it's a caricature itself, so I'm not going to apologise for that. But what it meant was you had a economic theory arguing in favour of loss yes. of debt, and that was exactly what the finance sector wanted yeah. to hear. Well, exactly. I mean, these companies aren't turning profits, are they? They're making a loss, uh, but they are still managing to um, make equity payments to the uh, to, to the people operating it. And uh, I mean, even even if they were making a profit, they are making their money by net capital gains on the private equity rather than ordinary income. So they're making, you know, they're getting their money out of capital gains. So the, the capital gains in the UK peaks at 28%, income tax peaks at 45%. So you can do all sorts of dodgy stuff by evading tax. And that's just the tax that stays in the country. This is a US private uh, equity fund, of course. So, you know, you'd assume that uh, should uh, should they be making a profit, and of course they've written off a massive loss against uh, 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 the Morrisons, so you know Morrison's isn't going to be paying any tax now to the UK government. Uh, they're, they're making any profit that is being made is being made by the group as a whole in the United States. But a lot of that uh, will be payments in uh, in capital gains rather than in straight income tax. Yeah, I mean this this is another con job which has happened globally. It's a minefield. Yeah, I mean, like Australia did the same thing. You might remember under the Howard government, they halved the rate of capital gains. Now, the idea was it's supposed to lead more investment. What it actually is was more speculation. Uh, you're better off to, you know, any income you generated, you're better to disguise that and call it capital gains. And you therefore halve the rate of tax you're paying. So there are so many tax loopholes that have been created in favour of capital gains, ostensibly because that leads to investment, and realistically it led to speculation and the sort of asset stripping we're seeing here. So I'm sure the company would say, you know, we, uh, we're we doing good work because we are providing a, a solid return for our clients. So our clients are, you know, their clients are pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign funds, you know, stinking rich people. Um, almost half of them are in North America. <laughs> and, and they could be saying, well, okay, you know, we could be making money for these people by investing in listed assets. I've heard this a few times with people saying listed assets, you know, the, the, the stock exchange is becoming a bit risky lately. It's getting overvalued. It's too volatile for these funds. They could be putting money into bonds. Bonds have been very volatile. So, you know, there's a bit of a move now for non-listed assets. So that could mean you buy into a share of a company, uh, of a non-listed company, or you just buy a company completely, which is what obviously these private equity funds are doing. So, I mean, I'm sure they would say, well, look, you know, we are buying these companies to make a profit so that we're giving a better return to the people who are on our books, our, our customers. What's wrong with that? If we are getting a better return for them than we would by just buying shares on the share market. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, one of the problems, apart from the fact that it ends up companies being very heavily levered, whereas before they didn't need to be levered because it was equity holders who provided the capital rather than rather than banks lending the money to the to the uh, private equity firms that do the buyout. Uh, and the argument, this is more discipline on the firm to make it behave better. But what you get is, as you said, with the case of Morrison's, you had an entire family whose history was retailing. And... Uh, you get a takeover by people who are, mm. uh, you know, which are derogatorily called bean counters. And my experience with that came actually more from the computer industry than anywhere else. And uh, I have a wonderful meeting with a guy who 
designed the database program. You might even remember, if you were old enough, DBase 2. Do you remember DBase 2? Yeah, 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 I do. Okay, well, Wayne Radcliffe mm. wrote DBase 2. And Wayne, I interviewed Wayne when he came out to Australia uh, promoting a new venture called the Emerald Bay. And he just hopped off the plane foaming at the mouth about MBAs, which is a code word for people who are, you know, venture, uh, uh, vulture, vulture capitalists taking over a firm who didn't care about the software being made. They simply wanted to make as much money as possible. And as well as taking over the, 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 the financial running of the company, they also tried to tell them how to design a database program. And what you have was a company which used to be driven by engineers was now driven by people who were worried about balance sheets. And the innovation went out the window. It was a case of what features can we add. So DBase 2 was partly called DBase 2 because it could handle two databases at once. And you'd flip between the two. I used to code in the damn thing, so I knew it very well. And Wayne wanted to bring in what was known as an entity relationship database structure, which is one of the most sophisticated structures you can have where you, uh, what, what, what are called entities, what other people would call database tables. And the relationship was a link between the tables. And in an entity relationship database, the relationships themselves would store Data. Now, what that meant was if you designed a form which was supposed to say uh, company, uh, companies buying products off your shop, then the relationship of the buying relationship would actually, uh, each, each link would contain the effectively the, the rows in an invoice, and it made for a far more sophisticated data structure. But no, Wayne was told he couldn't do that. He had to just add more tables. So rather than having two tables to control, they went to DBase 4, which had 10 tables to control. And speaking as a user, it was simply impossible to keep in your mind which table you had open, which which particular do-while loop that table was running inside. Uh, so what would have been a highly sophisticated change to a better product was ruined by people who were focused more on the dollars they were earning. And guess what? DBase 10, f 4, I think it was called, failed in the marketplace. So what you get is a, you undercut the innovation that enables a company to prosper. And that's because you've lost the link between the owner of the company and knowledge of what the company actually does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that is certainly the case with Morrison's. By the way, I love the way you take us off from these angles. Who, who, who would have thought as we started today uh, that you'd start ranting about database structures? But, you know, I'm, I'm glad you did because you make a point. Uh, so, it, I mean, the, I do it regularly. <laughs> You yeah, do. Yeah. So, I mean, we I'm are. Designing and the, and yeah. this has been an issue lately because in 2021, it was a big year for private equity firms offering to buy public companies. And the reason for that was because many of these private equity bidders that were sitting on large reserves of cash coming out of the pandemic. So, their customers had money. They wanted to invest. They'd run out of things to invest in. I've heard this a lot lately as well. They wanted to steer clear of uh, conventional instruments like bonds, so they were looking for where else to go. So there was this big market for acquisitions. And when it is night, so you've got a bit of money from coming from your customers, and then you've got this formula. You go, well, okay, we can take the the assets. Um, they're good value right now because you know a lot of things are undervalued. We're going to be financed ninety percent by debt. Um, then it doesn't really matter what you're buying as far as they're concerned. It's um, You don't need expertise in that area. You can just make it work because the assets are there. You've got you've got the 10%. 90% is going to come from, from debt. Um, you're going to be able to satisfy shareholders very quickly. Job done. Yeah, and this is like the whole finance-driven capitalism rather than 
entrepreneur-driven capitalism, which comes out of this. And and this this is one reason that, you know, I'm, I'm obviously think it's a stupid idea for a capitalist economy. And so did Keynes, because there's a wonderful uh, line, I think it's in the paper called The General Theory of Employment, when he said, when the activities, when the, when the, the development of an economy is driven by the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be all done. And this is one case of casino capitalism taking over when you have people whose bottom, everything they know about is numbers. They don't know about engineering. They don't know about aircraft. They don't know about retail. They just know about getting dollars on you know, numbers on a balance sheet. And as a result of that, they take the heart and soul out of these companies when in fact what makes capitalism work is when it's driven by people who understand the heart and the soul of the business they're in and are often it for the pleasure of the business as, as much as they are for the money. So um, it's the whole idea that a ubiquitous bunch of, uh, of uh, you know, private equity firms can run real businesses better than the people who actually established them in the first place is a load of bollocks. Mm. And I guess they go after, because I'm wondering how often uh, these private equity deals are actually ever beneficial to the company they acquire. I suspect it's a very, very small percentage. Well, that's, that's why I mentioned, that's when some of Richard's case, that's and I'm happy all, to, yeah, I'm, Richard, I hope you're listening. Uh, I'm happy to have a bit, a bit of what you told me for the PFO to come along and correct me. But I think what you did is an example of what should happen in these cases. Mm. And it worked because you understood the business. Yeah. So let's have a chat about yeah, that. Yeah, so a lot of the time it, it is just because, they, because the finance works. So now, of course, we you know we've had in the past lots of cases of hostile take, takeovers where the uh, private equity fund has gone directly to the shareholders to make an offer, or they've gone to the shareholders to try and get someone on the board so that the takeover can get through. Which is, of course, why private equity funds go after publicly listed companies. Uh, if you go to a company, a family-run business, it's not going to work. I, you know, or a, for example, would they be able to uh, to to buy into Waitrose uh, and John Lewis, which are run. Uh, not as a family company, but they run as a cooperative. So supposedly the members are the people running in, you know, working in the business. It'd be very hard, I'd imagine, for a private equity fund to to, to buy into that sort of structure because people wouldn't be interested because they'd say, well, hang on a second. You want to buy us and make us lose our job? No, thanks. Indeed. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's why I think it's important to have people running a business who are actually aware of what the business does rather than just aware of numbers on yeah. a balance sheet. All right. Well, look, how do we change this? Is there regulation? Are there some some policy changes that could be introduced that stop this sort of behavior? We'll explore that a little bit when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast. Back in a second. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. 
So we are looking at private equity uh, investors and, uh, you know, are they going to destroy uh, Morrison's? Uh, that certainly, they, you know, I'm sure Morrison's will be a lot smaller uh, in a year's time than it was uh, a year ago or a year or two back. And that is because a private equity firm from the United States has bought into them. Uh, they've uh, acquired a lot of debt in that purchase. And then they're saying, well, we've got to pay off that debt. The only way we're going to do that is by making the company more efficient, in other words, smaller. Uh, and uh, everyone is going to pay the price for that. Nobody wins in a situation like that. So, Steve, I wonder how we, we avoid this problem. So, Lord Sicker, who is Professor of Accounting at the University of Sheffield, last year he asked in the House of Lords what the impact of private equity firms is having on the British economy. His view, he said, was that the typical business model of private equity firms includes high leverage, financial engineering, tax abuse, pension dumping, job losses and asset stripping. And he named firms that he considered to be the victims of this practice, including Debenhams and Toys R Us. I wonder if he's going to be adding Morrison's to that list. But I mean, that is, I mean, he's got it in a nutshell there, hasn't he? That is the way they're operating. He's got it in a nutshell. I go, that's, that's, let's have a drink with that man one day. Uh, because <laughs> that's exactly the, what I've seen out of this experience of seeing it happening over the last 50 years in various industries, just observing most of the time. But what you have is people who don't know the business taking over the business. And the only thing they know is dollars. And that's what they make the focus on. And they can make stupid decisions, like the, the classic of all time, uh, which didn't actually happen by a private equity takeover, but it happened as a company which was run by engineers ended up being run by bean counters, was Boeing. And uh, I've, you know, it was with the 737. They had a particular plane which was certified for, for flying and been around for quite some time. Airbus came out with a plane they couldn't compete with in the mid-range market. They decided to re take a 737 and modify it uh, so that it would uh, compete with the Airbus, but to avoid the need to certify it, they simply added software they didn't tell the pilots about, and we lost two or three plane loads of people courtesy of that. And and what went, used to be a company which was dominated by engineers who would never in a million years do something as stupid as that uh, for the sheer sake of uh, being, being you know, matching a competitor and not needing to get a certification again. Uh, the, the engineering caliber just declined to literally a deadly level. And that's why I think it's so important that you, when you have people running a company, it should be people who know something about the industry, not just a blanket load of money-laden uh, leverage speculators that come in and take it over and say they're going to do a better job. Well, the response to Lord Sicker is a view uh, which is held by the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association. I want to talk about the title of that organisation in a second because they seem like two very different things. But they say such transactions can, and that's the operative word, can help to boost UK jobs increase management efficiency and support businesses to grow on the world stage. So they can do that. Uh, they don't. Perhaps the reason they don't they is because... They would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, they would say that. But the Private Equity and Venture Capital Association... So private equity, I see, is, you know, the situation that we're seeing uh, where companies are coming in and buying them supermarket chains uh, and, you know, riddling, riddling them with debt. Venture capital... 
It's a very different thing, isn't it? It's where you've got you're putting in seed money to help a business grow. So one of them are leeches. One of them is providing opportunity. It's interesting you've got an, an association that is supposedly covering off both uh, ends. It goes both ways. I mean, yeah, you know, I've, I've read enough about venture capitalists not to have approached venture capitalists for my idea of Ravel. And that that is because I've seen, you know, had plenty of people warn me who've been involved in entrepreneurial activities that you'll get done by venture capitalists the same way you might buy private equity. You get people who really couldn't care about what you're doing. That again, they're looking at the bean the bean counting numbers. They don't care about the the concepts you're putting forward, and they try to take you know because you, you, you're desperate for funds to try to get the thing developed in the first place. They get an inordinate share of the capital, and then if they can then use that to sell you out at some point, they'll do so. So I've been advised by people you know, that, that, you know, very wary of going to a venture capitalist to get funding. Um, so the, the, there's there's a sense in which this is all treated as if the pe- people providing the capital capital are knowledgeable about everything and dispassionate about what they're doing. Neither are true. You can get some exceptions to that, but, but the reality in practice is people who don't know the business and therefore don't understand what they're doing when they take it over uh, can make changes which only work by cutting the quality of what they're doing and get away with it until something screws up. And my, my most recent example, not recent, it's been going for 15 years, but I've been using a program called MathCAD for my mathematical analysis, which I love and which I actually was not only did I was in regular touch with the developers, I spoke with them about uh, the software when I visited the States. And there are several variations of the program which go right back to my ideas about it as a person using mathematical tools. They were taken over by a computer-aided design company, which at the time I didn't think would be disastrous, but it has been disastrous. So they couldn't give a, a, a brass razzoo about the mathematical side of things. And they basically abandoned their entire user base redesigning it for the use of their user base in computer-aided design. And it was a nightmare, and all the good people I knew left the firm. So what you have is behavior that takes the brains out of a company and then said, we're going to make more money. Yeah, so is I mean, the problem then, it seems to be when private equity forms... Uh, firms want to c- control the firm. Basically, they want to they want to own the business. Yeah, that is very different, isn't it, from uh, private pension? Well, from pension funds, for example, who want to buy equity in businesses that they don't control, and they don't, you know, and they could do that obviously just by buying shares in that company. But increasingly, some of these pension funds are saying, well, you know, it's just too risky buying shares or not getting the return. We are better off buying in unlisted assets, making investments in unlisted assets. And then potentially that money could be used for growth as well because they're not buying in and acquiring debt. They are just putting money in for a return. The company has to grow for them to see the return. That is a much better way of uh, of, of using these funds, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's more neutral. I mean, again, this, this intrusive side of... of uh of private equity is is what I'm focusing upon. I'd like to give the example, and I won't give all the details Richard's given me. I, I, I don't think I'd be breaking any any rules in saying it, but I just want to cover the essential point. Richard uh, did a private equity takeover of his own bank, part of the bank, because he was uh, he was a bank in Texas, and you all Texas banks at that stage were lending to oil drillers as of the late 1980s and the huge boom in oil prices early on quadrupling of oil prices. Then they all went bust because there were too many rigs. So the the banks then started selling off their 
uh, profitable bits to try to cover the debt for their losing their their oil rig business. And Richard was running the retail segment, and he said that you know he he knew what was going on. You you present as good as face as you possibly can to the board and to the public, and then you try to get what's fixed up behind the the scenes so it actually looks like the image you you gave. You said, well, I you know he managed to get funding for his takeover. He knew the business. He knew where the good bits were. He knew where the parts were he wanted to trim. Did it like crazy and turned it into a highly profitable venture rather than ending up with the asset stripping that happens when people who don't know the business are the ones who take it over. So again, it's this, you know, we talk about capitalism like it's a, an abstract thing you can write on a whiteboard. It's an incredibly complex system of production, distribution, exchange, and relative powers. And there are so many uh, specialized areas of knowledge we have that if you take over a business and don't have that specialized knowledge, you're going to stuff it up. And the only time these things work is when somebody who's knowledgeable about the business, as Richard was about banking, do the takeover. And most venture capitalists and and, and uh, private equity firms don't have that knowledge, don't care, and they're out for the short-term capital gain, and then ends up screwing up capitalism rather than improving well, Clayton, it. Clayton and Rice, who the the company that bought Morrison's, I mean, they have a vast portfolio across a whole load of different industries so they they are not they i mean they are just doing the numbers they're not a, a specialty business in any way they're you'd assume are i mean it would be nice if their companies grew but if they are in each case you know giving those businesses the debt that they used to acquire them <laughs> they're not going to grow out of that situation are they most of them don't and well, they're not most of them if, if numbers survive but i think it ends up it strips the personality out of those businesses and often what makes them succeed as businesses in the first place is the personality they acquire through an owner who actually knows the business and is trying to you know, develop it and improve it over time so it's normally a bad sign when your firm gets taken over by private equity Nobody clicks their heels and cheers. Uh, you, you, what you cheer is the prospect that you won't go bankrupt. There certainly a lot of firms do end up in, in doldrums and you have technological development that means that what was a hot area becomes a cold one over time. Like Polaroid's a classic example of that. They they could have they actually, from what I understand, they actually developed almost the very first digital camera and they decided not to pursue it because they made too much money out of the disposables and, uh, and that's what brought them undone. So sometimes with change of technology and existing management can stuff up and yes you do you would do better if a new management took over but most of the time you have people who don't know what they're talking about taking over a business and the only way they succeed is by you know paying the workers less stripping out the assets and trying to sell the thing on a rising uh, finance market and you get you, you you're not you're not developing the company you're disemboweling well and the reason they're doing that of course is because you know they are in it for the equity aren't they so they buy a business say for uh, 10 billion dollars uh, they want to see it suddenly being worth 12 billion and they only paid 9 for it so they've made you know so they made a gain so that's a capital gain yeah. And they get taxed as a capital gain. So in the UK, that's twenty eight percent. Income tax is forty five percent. Yeah. So you know, so you so it's a very efficient way of 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 making money, uh, with and paying less tax. So the way around that, which in the US they're looking at this to try and moderate the behaviour of private equity firms, is actually saying, well, I'll tell you what, for for these companies, for private equity funds, we're going to tax it all as an income tax. 
So, uh, mm. so all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that incentive disappears. Yeah, and that's you actually yeah. actually got to operate a business that's making a profit. And that's that's much more sensible because again, it's this you know focus on capital gain. It's the casino world. It's it's not running a business, not getting an income stream over time. And this is one of the classic things that you know pro market junkies. Uh, like to say, calls a distortion, and yet there are you know, they get rid of distortions like trade unions. They're not willing to get rid of distortion like having a greater capital gains tax that's half your income tax level, because um, that benefits people in, you know, in their their social circle and them most most of the time. Look at all the all the uh, uh, MPs who are household earners and, and don't pay tax on on the income gain on their on their first home and or their portfolio of of investment properties. So what you get is a focus on on speculation rather than investment, on you know, numbers rather than the rich tapestry of a of a capitalist production economy, and that ends up destroying the damn thing over time. And it certainly doesn't make anybody who works for those firms happier. Yeah, exactly. Well, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if you could turn the tide so that private equity firms have less of an incentive just to just to speculate. So that they use the money, maybe not, you know, like pension funds do, maybe not to acquire firms, but just to invest in them for growth, rather than just investing in them to to try and build up that that equity by asset stripping. So the other thing they're looking at in the US is higher priority to employee compensation if the company was was to go bankrupt, uh, because I'm sure there's a bit of a game played there as well, and prohibiting the payment of dividends for two years after an asset's been acquired by a private uh, equity equity fund as well. So they can't try and strip out money uh, and and pay themselves healthy dividends immediately afterwards. I'm sure there's many more things that can be done, but it certainly needs to be looked at because it keeps on happening, doesn't it? And for the UK, I mean, we lose out. So we've lost, you know, we lost control of a super, a family business, a, a successful family business that was doing a great service for people, primarily in the north of England, giving them a, a you know, what, what was a pretty good super, it still is actually, frankly, but, you know, we'll see what happens over the next few years. But a you know, a, a, a quite an innovative supermarket chain with a bit of history behind it might go to the wall or certainly will be not be a shadow of its former self as a result of all of this. And the UK government losing out on all the taxation yeah. from profits it's, from that um, business yeah, and you, lots of people you, losing their jobs. No one wins yeah. in this. No one wins. And uh, <laughs> maybe even the private equity go under because they took on, t- well, the thing is, they take on debt and then package that out so they don't go down with it. But uh, it'd be good to see some of them go down with the ship they sank occasionally. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, all those people who had, had invested in uh, Morrison's, who were shareholders, all of a sudden now have got extra cash, wondering what they do with it. Uh, they, well, they probably go to their local private equity fund saying, what can you do with this money? Or back onto the stock market. <laughs> Just what we need, more stock market bubbles. Putting, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wins. All right. Very good. Yeah. Uh, good to talk, Steve. Uh, we'll catch you again next week. Thanks. Thank you, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.